from Car Rigs and Ingram, this is It Figures, the CRI podcast, an accounting, advisory, and industry-focused podcast for business and organization leaders, entrepreneurs, and anyone who is looking to go beyond the status quo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the It Figures podcast, uh, the podcast of Car Rigs and Ingram, or CRI, as we refer to ourselves. Uh, and today's topic is going to cover ORSA requirements and changes to the regulatory exam process. I'm joined today by Andrea Harbison out of our Jackson, Mississippi office. How are you today, Andrea? Hey, I'm doing well. Great. And um, if you wouldn't mind, maybe just give us a little little bit of background and, and, and where you're coming to us uh, from on this topic. Yeah. Um, so I'm a senior manager out of the Jackson office, and I provide audit and business consulting services to insurance companies. But I also provide regulatory examination services to various departments of insurance. And so I have a little over 10 years of experience in the insurance sector here at CRI, and I'm also involved in numerous insurance um, organizations such as the NAIC, SOFIE, and IRIS. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, Andrea is, is definitely one of our insurance rock stars in the firm. My name is Scott Bailey, and I'm an audit partner out of our Raleigh, North Carolina office, and, uh, and I focus in, on insurance as well. So... Uh, once again, thank you for joining us, and you can find this podcast on uh, all the places where you would normally find a podcast, and you can find our content on Facebook and uh, Instagram, Twitter, all those lovely places. So with that, Andrea, let's let's jump right in on this topic. Um, so today we're going to talk about ORSA requirements, as we said at the top, as well as uh, some changes coming to the regulatory exam process. Let's start with uh, with ORSA, and just for the folks who may not be very familiar with that term, or some who may not be familiar with it at all, could you give us a a, a brief rundown on on what that means and who needs to pay attention to it? Sure. So ORSA um, is your is actually stands for Own Risk and Solvency Assessment, and what this is, it is for um, insurance companies that have about five hundred million or more in annual direct and assumed premium. So ORSA would only apply for kind of like your mid to large size entities. And it does also apply for those insurance groups that write more than 1 billion in annual and written, uh, annual written and assumed premium. So it's not gonna be for the small entities. It is gonna be for just those larger and, and mid-size insurance companies. And an insurer that is subject um, to ORSA would be expected to at least annually conduct a risk assessment to assess the adequacy of their risk management framework, such as their enterprise risk management function. And they would also need to determine um, and estimate their current and future solvency positions. And what they would also do, um, they would internally document this process and the results of their assessment, and then they would have to provide a confidential high-level ORSA summary report that would need to be filed with the state of the domicile. So ORSA essentially is just an enhanced oversight tool for the company to use. And it forces management to look at all functions of the entity to determine what risks are affecting the company, 
um, what controls are in place to mitigate those risks, and you know, to ensure is the company adequately capitalized to um, endure any significant negative trends associated with those risks. So if done properly, ORSA should really help to foster an effective level of uh, ERM. You know, it's funny you say that because as you were going through it, I was thinking, I was making the same comparison in my mind to uh, ERM or enterprise risk management, which we're also seeing a lot of that going on with uh, financial institutions and and really starting to cross over into uh, in commercial businesses. But uh, but back to ORSA there. Um, so what is it now that's really bringing this to the forefront? Why is this sticking out in uh, in the regulatory mindset? What's what's bringing this to the top? So it really does come back to why was ORSA adopted in the first place? So because of the 2008 and 2009 financial crisis, you had non-insurance components of a holding company that took on huge losses from these risky investments. This caused financial uncertainty and sometimes even nearly a collapse of an entire holding company system that included those U.S. insurers. So let's fast forward a little over 10 years and we have this worldwide pandemic that has called billions of dollars in losses per companies. So regulators are still very much focused on ORSA because we're living in a time where a company's success or failure might very well be referenced as to how they managed and they dealt with COVID and not just with COVID itself, but how did they navigate what is considered, you know, our new normal, our post-COVID era? How did they handle that? So um, that's one reason why this is such still a very hot topic for regulators. And also this event, although it may not have been something that was on um, insurance companies forefront pre-COVID, it would obviously be um, looked at now and could potentially even be included in a company's ORSA filings that would be filed this year. Um, and and some of these, I think for, for some areas, maybe some states, it seems like these ORSA filings are, are somewhat new. Isn't that right? They are. So the ORSA, which was Model Law 505, went into effect in 2015, but some... Uh, states did not fully adopt that model law until a few years later. So you have these ORSA summary reports that are still fairly new. Some of the DOIs only have seen just a few of these for you know maybe three years. So it's still a learning um, stage, I guess you would call it, for both the insurance companies and the DOIs. So that's still one reason why it's such a such a big topic for regulators. Absolutely. And when you, I guess when you consider the fact that one of those years that they've looked at includes a pandemic year, it's really hard to sort of figure out what the baseline is going to be, I guess. Yes, absolutely. So what exactly are the significant changes that we're seeing? Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, advise our clients and, 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 sort of give them what we're seeing on the horizon, what's coming and things like that. What are the things that that you're seeing that you think are really going to either maybe maybe rock the boat or maybe not rock the boat, but uh, definitely some changes that both the regulators and, and, and ORSA filers are going to feel? So something that we would really expect the DOIs to have increased scrutiny over would be you know, what is in the ORSA, but really most importantly, what's not included in the ORSA. 
especially given this pandemic situation we're currently facing. You know, this past year really forced companies to reassess risk, and you would expect that, that reassessment to be reflected in the ORSAs that would be filing for this particular year. And ORSA is not meant to just be an annual review where you check it off the list to satisfy the regulators. It is meant to continuously evolve over time. So it should be a component of the ERM framework that encourages management to anticipate potential capital needs and to take proactive steps to reduce those solvency risks. So what you would expect or the DOI would expect to see a progression in the development of that first ORSA filing that was prepared by the company compared to the the most recent. So if the DOI isn't seeing much uh, progression in the development of that ORSA filing year after year, then there may be in some, some uncertainty as to whether the company is truly following their ORSA or if it's just there you know, for the sake of checking off the box. Um, but if done correctly, ORSA really should help an organization improve the identification of strategic risks. And again, it would help improve their ERN function. So basically, if, uh, you know, say the DOI got one of these filings and it sort of looked like a carbon copy-ish or, or very similar to what it would look like, say, for last year or, or even the year prior, seems like that would maybe throw up a red flag for them? It absolutely would. I mean, you would expect maybe some of the risks, would, the, the top risk identified in the ORSA would still be similar year to year. But especially given COVID and everything that we've gone through, we would highly anticipate there would be some changes in the filings um, that would occur for this year. And um, also, you know, based on some of the feedback that we've received from the regulators, along just with our own observation that we do during the examination process, um, there are times when the key and emerging risks that have been identified in that ORSA they may not always clearly identify the mitigating controls in Section 2 of the ORSA. So ORSA does have like Section 1, 2, and 3 included in there. And in the Section 2, this is where the insurance company should go through all the mitigating controls. And sometimes there's just not a good enough linking between those risks and then the controls that are identified. So we really would expect the regulators to take a closer look um, at those companies' risk and to make sure those controls are being properly identified. And also, we would expect the regulators to even look closer as to, okay, you've identified these risks, uh, you know, maybe top five or top 10 risks. Are these actually risks that we're seeing in the industry ourselves? So that's something that we definitely uh, would expect the regulators to look at. And also, another note, you do have um, examiners are now required to look at certain things that are included in the ORSA. So if you're putting controls in there um, to help mitigate these risks, those examiners are going to heavily review your ORSA, analyze it, and test it. So insurance companies just need to make sure that they are aware that the examiners will be looking at this pretty heavily. Good to know for sure. And, uh, you know, certainly important. And, um, and, and as part of that, we started talking about the, the regulatory exam process, which is, is everyone's favorite, um, just sort of dovetailing into that 
from ORSA, but, but diving in a little more deeply on what we see coming from the regulatory exam process, what are some of the things that we're, we're seeing on the horizon? As, as we've said, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with another year of, 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 of pandemic and all the effects that that's having on the market. So what are we seeing from the regulators? What are we seeing from insurance companies there? Yeah, so this is something that the regulatory exam process is still kind of changing constantly. It's still pretty fluid. And depending on the state of domicile, you know, you may get a different answer on this. But the feedback that we've received from regulators and just what we have seen is, um, if you recall, a lot of these um, exams pre-COVID, they would have the examiners on site for different things. A lot of times for your kickoff meeting, um, the DOIs would want the examiners on there sitting at the company. And then especially for the C-level interviews, and those are interviews with your CEO, CFO, the chief actuary, um, those would always be held in person as well. In addition to the walkthroughs, well, since COVID, obviously examiners and DOIs, they really had to change that approach pretty drastically. And obviously one of those is being, you know, working remotely and having virtual sessions. And so you still have some DOIs that are in the office, maybe on a rotational basis, but a lot of them are still 100% remote. And so given this situation, I would expect for these upcoming exams and even exams that are current, I would still expect those to be 100% virtual. And while some companies may be absolutely excited about this, they don't have to worry about paying the travel costs for the examiners or accommodating them you know, on site, giving them their location to stay. You do have to remember with a remote work environment, it does mean there's a lot of screen time involved. So there's going to be a lot more virtual meetings. And so the examiners really aren't going anywhere. But you may find it where you actually have to provide a lot more assistance to them just because they aren't on site and they can't go to this department directly as easily as they could before. Um, and actually, we I completed an entire exam this past year 100% remote. And so what you would expect um, on potentially an exam, for example, when you had to do a walkthrough and do... Um, system controls, you know, we, I sat down with, for example, it was a claims manager and he, we shared, he shared his screen and I took screenshots of certain warnings and red flags and messages that came up so that I could get my controls um, and show that I observed the controls in place. And it worked out perfectly fine. Um, it may have taken a little longer than just being on site at the company, but I would um, expect at least for this year and probably even next year, for these exams to be 100% virtual for the most part. And we also would expect these um, exams to have a lot more emphasis on cybersecurity. Now, granted, this is something that's been a hot button for several years, you know, just because of all the breaches that have occurred. But I would think even more since you have so many people working remotely, that would be something that your IT examiners would look into more heavily. And the DOIs would right. would want to look into that. Right, right, for sure. So it sounds like certainly some of the the challenges and opportunities for the exams coming up in the next twelve to twenty four months. It sounds like uh, making time for 
dialogue and having to be a lot more intentional about making that time for dialogue. And then, and, and then again, that, that cybersecurity thing just, uh, just keeps hanging around, doesn't it? Yes, that one's definitely not going anywhere anytime soon. So that would be something, um, if they haven't already done so, the company just needs to make sure they've got the right IT policies and procedures in place you know, to address those risks that they have. Um, and also something else that I we feel like the examiners obviously would inquire about um, would be, you know, how did the company react to COVID? Did they follow the company protocols or did they have to make changes? Obviously, most companies never would have thought they would have had to have a shutdown for not just a few days or a few weeks, but for months. And so, you know, I think it's perfectly fine you know, for the company to talk with the regulators and say, yeah, you know, we went through our plan. Our plan said to do to do this, this, and this. And when we got into it, we realized when we had to send 300 people home, that plan didn't go exactly according to the way that we would prefer. So we had to make some improvements. We had to make some adjustments on the fly. So uh, insurance companies need to be ready to kind of explain how they reacted to COVID, especially sending everyone home. I know that was a big deal for, for all companies involved, not just insurance companies. But um that would be something too. They just need to have on the back of my mind of their mind to um, discuss that with the regulators. For sure, and it sounds like really both of these issues, circling back to our discussion on Orsa, really fit in well for companies that have a really strong uh, Orsa or ERM program, or even sort of a basic level, um, you know, disaster response, disaster recovery program. Yes, absolutely, it would. Great. Any closing thoughts that you've got? Um, no, just really the only um, other thing related to potential, you know, exam changes or, or just emphasis on the exam would be maybe the re early retirements that did occur in COVID. Um, you know, companies just need to make sure they do have a solid succession plan in place. That's always been something on the regulators' uh, regulators' mind is you know. Does this company have a succession plan? What if something happens to this person? What if something happens to the CFO unexpectedly? So um, that would just be something, I think, because of all these early retirements, a company needs to make sure that they have a solid a succession plan in place, you know, in case something were to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, making time to uh, to be a part of this podcast and, and for talking with us today. And thanks to you, the listeners, we appreciate you tuning in. And um, again, you can find our content on all the major platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, we're out there and you can find this podcast where you find your, uh, your regular podcast activity. Thanks again for joining us. And this is the end of this episode of the It Figures podcast by CRI. If you want more CRI insights or are interested in learning about our firm, please visit our website at CRICPA.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of It Figures, the CRI podcast. You can subscribe to It Figures on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review.